you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me for a few minutes to the book of Revelation. As we continue what we started last night, um, as I said, my theme for this, our short time together in the evenings, is rereading Revelation. And last night we began looking at Revelation. I mentioned to you a, a book written, The End of Historicism. And a couple of people I've talked to, you know, raised this question, uh, really is historicism, is the principle of looking at revelation being fulfilled throughout history, is it still valid? In fact, it's questioned, even among some um, some of the Adventist scholars in different ways. And particularly, the seven churches have come under scrutiny uh, because they really don't seem to have much prophetic imagery in them. So we're going to start, we're going to look tonight in Revelation chapter 2. And if you're familiar with Revelation, you know that there are series of sevens in the book. There's the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3, and we find the seven seals, chapter 6, and part of chapter 8. Then we have the seven trumpets and all that perplexing imagery in chapters 8, 9, and then ending in chapter 11, and then, of course, the seven last plagues. And I really want to focus on one particular part of the first church, the church in Ephesus. But before I do, I I want to just share a few reasons that I think that the seven churches should and can be read from a historicist perspective. That is, that they have meaning for the people that lived in John's day, but they also had prophetic application throughout history. I'm going to share a couple of quotes from Ellen White, but let me share a few. I have actually 11 or 12 points on my list. I'm not going to read them all by any means. But first of all, it's very clear that these letters are not ordinary letters. The imagery that's used about them, the fact that each one of these different letters, starting with the Church of Ephesus and ending with the Church of Laodicea, All of them have Jesus saying, or a reference about Jesus saying, um, the Alpha and the Omega, or the the Amen, says this. Or the one that has the sharp, two-edged sword says this. The one that holds the seven stars and walks among the seven candlestands says this. It's a very structured expression, which reminds us, if we think carefully about the entire Bible, of a thus saith the Lord. These are not just letters that coming from John to these churches. These are prophetic utterances. Just like in the Old Testament, you had a thus saith the Lord. In addition to that, these, the imagery in these seven churches, these small seven letters, the imagery in it transcends the local historic context. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, in the church of Thyatira, you have a woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel is a harlot. She was a queen. Well, in the book of Revelation, there's another harlot queen. What's her name? Babylon. That's right. And so the imagery in the letters to the seven churches is tied. Remember I mentioned yesterday John makes a tapestry and he uses verbal threads to create his picture. 
the imagery in the seven churches is tied to the rest of the book of Revelation. In fact, as we'll look tomorrow night, in the church to Pergamum, there's a throne. It's Satan's throne, which is very important to the larger part of the book of Revelation. So there's lots of reasons. If you're interested in more, uh, let me know, and I can share some of them. But I think there's good reasons for understanding these letters as moving through time. They applied in John's day, but they also moved prophetically through time. But more importantly, and I stress that, more importantly, they apply to us today. And that's really what I want to focus on. But let me give you a little background. First of all, from Seven Bible Commentary, page 957, Ellen White looks at the church of Ephesus in a historical context. 7 BC, 957, paragraph 2. And it, she says this, In view of the many virtues enumerated, how striking is the charge brought against the church at Ephesus? And then she mentions the charge. We'll come to that in a moment. This church, Ephesus, was highly favored. It was planted by the apostle Paul. And then she goes on and she describes what happened in the historic city of Ephesus with the temple of Diana. So Ellen White reads this, and I think we need to read it as those first century readers that heard or read Revelation in Ephesus, it meant something to that particular congregation. And there's lessons we can gain from it. So there's that viewpoint. But Ellen White also makes a prophetic connection to the church in Ephesus. Acts of the Apostles, page 578, paragraph 1. She says, the zeal manifested at this time by the followers of Jesus has been recorded by the pen of inspiration for the encouragement of believers in every age of the church at Ephesus, <clears throat> which the Lord used as a symbol of the church in the apostolic age. The faithful and true witness declares, and then she quotes some of the passages. But you notice what she says. First of all, she talks about the church of Ephesus and the literal people there. Historic, 7 BC. Then she talks about it. No, the church of Ephesus is a symbol of the church in the apostolic age. And when we think prophetically, that's usually what we think. We think of Ephesus in the apost apostolic age, Smyrna in a time of persecution, coming on down to the church of Laodicea, which is the church just before the coming of Christ. And that's true, no question. That would be a prophetic, historic view. But did you know that Ellen White also applies Ephesus to you and to me? And that, I think, is very important for us today, especially as we think of one thing in our retreat, the spiritual aspect. Ellen White asks the question, is not this experience of the Ephesian church re excuse me, repeated in the experience of the church in this generation. How is the church of today that received knowledge of the truth of God using this knowledge? And then she goes on and she continues describing how the church in her day, this generation, had this first love experience, but something happened. And that's what I want to look at with you tonight, just briefly, 
for a few moments. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Again, that phrase is repeated in all the churches. Verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. Verse 3, and you have perseverance, an important trait in the book of Revelation, by the way, and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. Next word, but, nevertheless, depending on your translation, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That is our great need as Seventh-day Adventists living just before the return of Jesus Christ. We're very clear on doctrinal issues. We test people that might be false apostles. We found them to be false. We might be right in doctrine, but we have left our first love. Without love, Everything we do is nothing. Paul tells us that love is the fulfilling of the law. If we love, we fulfill the law. We can fulfill all sorts of laws outwardly, but if we don't love, it's nothing. And this opening letter to the seven churches, which represent the God's people throughout history, sure it meant something to the church in Ephesus in the first century. Yes, it meant the apostolic church, but brothers and sisters, it also means you and me. That the one that walks among us, the one that holds us very tight, looks into our hearts and says, you've left your first love. Reading a book recently, and in the book it was talking about, the author of the book was telling how Frequently, when he sits someplace, and I do the same thing, he watches people. I spend a lot of time traveling. I sit in airports, more time than it's probably healthy. And I watch people. And I know myself that pretty soon my watching of people turns into judging them. Okay, I wonder, you know, how that person is dressed. Or is that a pack of cigarettes in that person's pocket? Or... Why are they really eating that? Or how come they were just rude? And I turn from watching to judging. Judging other people is a part of our human condition, which is an abomination to God. God loves every person in this world. He calls us not to sit as judges on other people, but he calls us to love. I want to give you an illustration um, that might make us a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you know, there are numerous Bible verses, 250, that talk about uh, how we handle our wealth. There are about 300 Bible verses that talk about how we should care for the poor. There are about seven Bible verses that talk about homosexuality. 
But homosexuality is much more of a hot-button issue in Christianity today than is how I love. Eating disorders are a tremendous scourge in this world. Now, talking about eating here, we're all health reformers. We're interested in this. Um, but eating disorders are a real problem in this world, yes or no? Eating disorders are very complex things, aren't they? I mean, obviously, there's choice when someone has an eating disorder, so that's involved. But there also could be genetics involved in eating disorders. There could be uh, environmental issues. There could be things that happened when somebody was growing up. There could be abuse in their life. And so we have different programs. We try to have programs for depression recovery and cooking classes. And we, you know, we realize that people struggle with all these different things, and in certain spheres, we try to demonstrate love. Well, you know, and again, I'm using this as an example for, for a very specific reason. Homosexuality is a very difficult and complicated situation as well. Certainly, there's choice. Environment, perhaps. Genetics, perhaps. Uh, things that took place during a person's life. But the question for us is, how do we relate to somebody that's outside of what we think should receive our love? Now, don't misunderstand anybody. I don't want anybody going uh, away tonight thinking that I'm advocating homosexual lifestyle. I'm not. Neither am I ed ed uh, advocating a harmful eating lifestyle. I'm not. What I am saying is the true witness tells us that the defining quality of God's people at the end of time should be love. And that every person we meet, whether we agree with their lifestyle or not, should be recipients of God's love through us. Without that, it doesn't matter what else we're doing. Let me read something to you. Review and Herald, um, February 3rd, 1891. You have left your first love. Is this not our case? Our doctrines may be correct. We may hate false doctrine and may not receive those who are not true to principle. We may labor um, with untiring energy, but this is not sufficient. What is our motive? She goes on to say, Review and Herald, February 25th, uh, 1904, those mentioned in this scripture as losing their first love were not ranked with open sinners. They had the truth. They were established in doctrine. They were firm to condemn and resist evil. Yet God says, I have something against you. They were losing their realization, listen carefully, of the greatness of the love that God has shown for fallen humanity. When we realize how much God loves people, wherever they are, we will long to show that love to others. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the first letter here in Revelation is a pointed thing for Seventh-day Adventists. We know the truth. We know it's right. We believe it. We contest those that are false. But have we lost our first love? Do we sit in judgment on someone else? That is not our prerogative. Our position is to do what? 
be a channel of love and show other people what God is really like. But you know, in order to do that, we need to believe that he really is love and that he's constantly, all the time, dispensing his benefits to every one of us. So as we continue reading Revelation, let's keep this in mind. God wants us to have this one thing, which is a heart full of love. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the primacy of love, the place that love needs to have in my heart. Lord, I confess that frequently I've lost my first love, my first love for you and for my brothers and sisters. I thank you, I praise you that you call us to this repentance, that love can be the motivating principle of every action in our life. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.